You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 126. 5K for actors, 2K for insurance, 2K for food and drink, 9K in the can. We only shot for 12 days. Now that's how you make an independent film. Edward Burns. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to a special episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Today, I have on the show indie film legend Edward Burns. Now, Ed blasted onto the scene in his lottery ticket story. That lottery ticket story I talk so much about that filmmakers are always looking for and they're going to make their film and get picked up and it goes off to make a million dollars in their career launches. Well, that's exactly what happened to Edward Burns with his film, his 1995 film, The Brothers McMullen, which he made for about $27,000 uh, on on weekends and, 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 and he was working as a as a PA on Entertainment Tonight while he was doing it. And he was, oh, there's just so much, so many stories about how this movie got made, but it got bought by Fox Searchlight and it went on to make $10 million at the box office, which catapulted Ed into into stardom like overnight. And he followed up with She's the One with Jennifer Aniston and Cameron Diaz. And he continued to make film after film and he kept getting bigger and bigger budgets, but what he realized is that he wanted to have more freedom with his art and what he did. So he went back to the Brothers McMullen model, which was low-budget, micro-budget films. So he made a movie called Newlyweds for $9,000. And he continued to make these low-budget $10,000, $20,000 independent films because it allowed him to be more free as a filmmaker. And I really admire that about Ed because Ed not only became a very popular director and writer, but he became a very popular actor starring movies like Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg's masterpiece, um, The Holiday, the Christmas classic, and many, many more. The list goes on and on how many films and TV shows he's been in over the years. And many filmmakers and many guys who get thrown into that kind of world could easily just cash out and coast for the rest of his life and his career, taking acting roles and 
directing, you know, big things when they came along and so on and so forth. But not Ed, man. He wanted to go back to his indie roots and continues up to this day in his indie roots. And I I just was so honored to talk to Ed and have him on the show. We just went. <laughs> I mean, this interview is epic. The first 30 minutes is how he was able to get Brothers McMullen off the ground. There's been so many myths about Brothers McMullen and how it got made and how it got sold. And we actually get the truth straight from the horse's mouth, as they say. And we talk about independent filmmaking, about the micro-budget model, his remarkable book, Independent Ed, which chronicles his whole career from Brothers McMullen all the way uh, to his latest films, talking about how he broke them down, how he's how he made them. He really wanted to give back as much as possible. And I got to tell you, that book was an amazing inspiration to me to make my first film, This Is Meg, and understanding that I could go out and make a micro-budget film that could go out and make money and could get sold and could get licensed to Hulu and so on. It was his book that really ignited that in me. And if you ever get a chance to get his DVDs of all of these micro-budget films that he makes, his director commentaries are gold, absolute gold. And I'm going to put links to all of those films in the show notes. This was an epic conversation, to say the least. And if you're an independent filmmaker trying to make micro-budget films, this is the episode for you. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Edward Burns. I'd like to welcome to the show Edward Burns, man. How you doing, Ed? Alex, man, great to uh, speak to you. As yeah. I was telling you earlier, I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time, so it's cool to be on it. That's, that's humbling and remarkable. When I heard that from, uh, from your uh, producing partner, uh, Aaron, I was floored that you'd been listening to me. Like I told him, I'm like, sometimes you just sit in a room with a mic and you have no idea who's listening. So uh, that's very humbling. And I, uh, I've been a fan of yours, man, since, uh, since Brothers McMullen days. You are uh, one of those lottery ticket stories, those kind of Cinderella stories that you hear about from the nineties, um, you know, along with Robert and Kevin and, and, and Richard Linkletter and all those guys that came around and you came in that crop man of like, I always tell people the nineties was just like such a glorious time to be a filmmaker. Cause it felt like almost every month or every week, almost there was one of these stories that came out. Is that fair to say? <laughs> you know, uh, it, probably, it probably was. I mean, I know for me, it certainly was, you know, Sundance was the launching pad sure. every year. You know, you would see those articles coming out of there. Um, uh, for me, it was, there was a, uh, a couple of movies, you know, obviously uh, Rodriguez is El Mariachi, but I think before that Nick Gomez had a movie called Laws of Gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was made for 23,000. And that was really a huge influence on me. Um, when I could see like, oh wait, you can make a feature film for 23 grand all in. And it can then get picked up for distribution because really prior to that, what you would hear when you were in film school, and I'm in film school in like 89, 90, 91, mm-hmm. um, is that the way in is to make a short film. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was, um, there used to be something called, uh, the IFP used to run something called the Independent Feature Film Market mm-hmm. that they held down at the Angelica Theater in the Village. And that's where, you know, if you could get your short film in there 
you know, all of the buyers and uh, managers and agents, the whole like New York indie film scene would be there. And that was the launching pad. And I can remember I went there with my first short film and there were short films that had like big budgets uh, that, you know, really high end production value. And I knew I would never be able to raise enough money to compete with that. Right. You know, then when Laws of Gravity comes out, um, uh, the Living End, the Greg Rocky movie came out. Oh, that's right. The, and the one movie that always gets and he doesn't get the credit that he deserves, Robert Townsend, Hollywood Shuffle. Oh, oh, without a doubt. But that one was a little bit more 80, expensive. That was, but that was he was still, but it was still like he put it on his credit cards though. And oh, okay. yeah, 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 right. It was Robert. It was eighty six, eighty seven. And he was in L.A. and he made it for like it was in the 20 to 75 range. Oh, really? Okay. It wasn't. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't crazy. He put it on credit cards. He was the first filmmaker that I heard of that put it on his credit cards because I was working at a video store back in the late yeah. 80s, early 90s. So I remember Hollywood Shuffle and it was just. And what year is that? I feel like that kind of. 87. Pre- oh, it's 87. OK, yeah. So that's a little earlier. It's yeah. right before. It's before. Sex Lies hits, you know, which was a million dollar, but that before he launched the yeah. Sundance and and before Laws of Gravity and Mariachi and Clerks and, and all that run. But he was one of the first to do it, but he doesn't get the, the and the, he's never in the same conversations. And I, I always make it a point to point out how in, instrumental Robert, uh, Robert Johnson yeah. was. Interesting. Yeah. I like, so when would Metropolitan have been? Is that, uh, Metropolitan is probably. But that's what you, that's one, Wooden, right? What's that? Which, which, which one's Metropolitan? I that's the Rick Stillman movie. That was another oh, one. That's right. Movie. That's right. That was around. Oh God, that was that was around that time. But yeah. also, like, I mean, the ones that got the most attention. I mean, obviously, Robert uh, got the biggest. I mean, Robert Rodriguez got the biggest thing with Mariachi. Yeah. Like he, that was that's still a mythical. In 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 the, in the halls of independent film, people still talk about El Mariachi as this mythical thing, um, uh, and in the same breath with Clerks and Brothers McMullen, uh, Slacker as well. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, so Slacker is probably two years before me. That was another big one because I think Rick made that for maybe in that twenty five to fifty range. Right, and and I was just had Scott Mosier on the show. Uh mm-hmm. and and Scott was telling me, I'm like, Scott, what was the who was the thing? He's like, oh it's Slacker. Slacker was the blueprint. Because I'm like, you guys didn't have a blueprint really. It was like but before that though, you know, Long Island's own Hal Hartley. Yes. The guy who to who I feel like because he did three in the early nineties. You know, he did um it was the unbelievable truth. Simple Men, and I forget the third. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But those were all done, you know, in that under $100,000 uh, budget range. And the thing that was interesting, back to sort of the whole, you know, short film versus a feature, was uh, seeing that every year, all of a sudden, you know, you had Al Hartley. Then you mentioned Rodriguez. You had um, don't forget uh, Jim Jarmish. Jim Jarmish. But that's prior. You know, yeah, that, that's, he's more in the Spike Lee. Uh, yeah, she's got to have it. Yeah, she's got to have it. Time right. You know, those guys came up mid '80s. This is more that early '90s micro budget that then got distribution, and that right. was really, I think, the thing that changed things because it wasn't just make a short as a calling card to get an agent to hopefully make a Hollywood feature. Right. You can be more like, uh, more like an indie uh, rock band 
who was like, you know, yeah. hey, we're going to just put out our own thing. And this thing has its own value. We're not trying to parlay this into a gig to work with the studio. We're going to create something new here that then we can build upon. So that is really what changed, I think, in the early 90s. You know, um, if you look at Kevin Smith, you know, granted, you know, Clerks is a, is a micro budget movie, but he basically stays within that milieu. You know, I know I did as well. Um, Hal Hartley is another guy who did. Some guys or gals chose to sort of take that and, and turn it into sort of a bigger, sort of more studio type of uh, filmmaking career. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I think that's what folks were trying to do. Like, treat it more like you're in a band. And it's like, all right, we make gritty sort of punk rock albums, and that's what we want to continue to do. So when you, you know, when you were coming up, I mean, I, I mean, this, your story also is also quite mythical about the whole being a PA and, and, and working at ET. Can you tell everybody, cause a lot of people listening might not know the story of actually how you got, um, well, before we get how you got into Sundance, how did you get brothers McMullen off the ground? Where, like what made you think that you, like you can make it? <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, you, you, it was, it's nuts. It's like, now you look at it and you're like, oh, well, everyone could do that. But back then there was, there was no internet. There was no knowledge about this really. So how did you do it, man? Um, I mean, it's a crazy long story and you just tell me to switch gears when you're <laughs> tired. So, sure, sure. I remember because it's like, I make the film 28 years ago when I am, basically I start when I'm 24, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, Coming out of film school, you know, like you said, I'm a, I'm a production assistant at a television show in New York, which basically my job was driving the van and setting up the lights. That's the extent of what I did. Um, so I had plenty of time. It was a job that required no mental focus at all. So I spent all my time writing screenplays. I, I At the time, you know, one of the guys we forgot to mention is Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs. Well, there's that guy. <laughs> Um, so I see Reservoir Dogs and I'm like, okay, that is what I need to write. So I probably write in my four years or three and a half years out of film school, five feature length scripts. Three of them are Reservoir Dog ripoffs. I am pouring through the trades every day, trying to find or identify the agents or managers who sign first time screenwriters. So that's who I'm sending all of my Smart. scripts to. Smart. All right. And every day, my dad told me something. He's like, look, there's absolutely another filmmaker out there who is outworking you. So you need to make sure every day you do one little thing to chip away at the brick wall that separates you from the dream. So that meant, you know, I'm going to write a scene in my script or I'm going to write another letter to an agent or I'm going to send my short film into another film festival. Every day I made sure I did one little thing. So I write all these scripts. I send them out. I get nothing but rejection letters back. And um, uh, I, I come to the conclusion, and this has happened to me a couple times in my career, where I kind of recognize, well, maybe I'm just not that good. You know, Maybe it isn't that they... Uh, don't un they can't recognize what a talent I am. Right. Maybe I'm just actually not talented. <laughs> right. Maybe I need to go back to school and learn a little bit more. Right. And at the time, um, I see an ad for the Robert McKee story structure class. Mm -hmm. yeah? So a lot of people might poo-poo that. No, you know, traditional Hollywood uh, structure is BS, you know, three acts, don't pay any attention to that. For me, it was it was incredible. I go there 
And, and, you know, you learn a lot of this stuff and you're, you know, screenwriting one-on-one stuff in film school. But again, you know, a lot of it you, you forget, or, you know, if you want to be like a cool arty kind of kid, you're dismissive of that stuff. Mm-hmm. At this point, after five rejected screenplays, I am no longer thinking I'm hot shit. I am not dismissive of anything. I recognize I need to learn. Right. So I take the class and, you know, a couple of things that um, he said uh, that really struck a chord with me. One was, you know, what is your favorite genre of film? What do you like love to watch? That is the next screenplay that you should be writing. You like horror? Write a horror script. You like you know, action, do that. And at the time, I was like a massive Truffaut and Woody Allen fan. Like, that's all I was doing. Uh, it was all I was watching. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Basically, relationship, comedy, drama, a little bit of an ensemble. Um, you know, I'd look at those Woody Allen films and I'd be like, okay, that's a one You know, for people, I'm mean, everyone listening to you, I think mm-hmm. knows what a one is. But one shot without a cut that lasts almost two minutes of two people walking down a street in Manhattan talking about their relationships. Okay, I know from my my film school days, that's about as easy as you can do with no money. Uh, that's as, as easy a scene as you can pull off compared to shooting, let's say, an interior scene in a crowded restaurant where I'm going to need to hire extras and whatever. Mm-hmm. So as I sit down, as I, and when I leave McKee, I'm like, All right, that's what I'm going to do. I know that's the genre that I want to play in. Um, I decided to make an ensemble because I knew from my uh, my student films that when you're not paying your actors, there's no guarantee that any of them are ever going to show up. You know, especially in New York, everybody's got other jobs. They're waiting tables. They're working in a gym. Um, you know, you would have people just bail on you in the middle of a shoot. So I said, if I have an ensemble and I cast myself and my girlfriend opposite me, I know that even if this thing blows up, I have a short film. And that's why, and it's a crazy way to write a screenplay, but I wrote it as four sort of different movies. The okay. first movie was the three, bro- and then I listed all the locations that I knew I could get for free. Mm-hmm. So I knew I could get my parents' house. So that was location number one. Then I knew every street corner and sidewalk and public park in New York City, I knew from my working in Newsdays, uh, you did not, first of all, there was no cost to shoot there. And you would never be bothered. No cop would ever ask you, certainly in the early 90s in New York, if you had a permit to shoot. Not when New York was still a little gritty then. They could care less about three students out with a camera. Right. So I was like, so that's what the movie will be. Uh, I'll have these three brothers. And the one movie is the movie that takes place in their house. And then they'll each have a girlfriend in Manhattan. And those will be my other three short films. So I kept thinking if it didn't work out. I could have a 25-minute movie, 50-minute movie, 75-minute movie, or a feature. So, so you actually backed into like you backed into this film w- with disaster in mind. Like oh, totally, totally. Reverse engineered the whole thing. It's amazing. That's remarkable. I had never heard that part of the of the of the, of the myth, if you will. <laughs> so that's kind of how I laid out the script. Right. And um, you know, so then uh there was an article in the IFP's old magazine, The Independent. And they did an article on Living End, Laws of Gravity, and I forget, the, maybe one of the Hal Hartley movies. And they basically broke down those budgets. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. 
And they were, like I said earlier, one was 23, one was 28, one was like 35. And I looked at that and I said, based on my experiences with my student films, I was like, I think I can pull this McMullen script off for about 25,000. I think I can get it in the can for 25. So my old man, you know, again, my dad was a cop in New York. I am working class kid, grew up with no money, no connections in the business. We knew a lawyer and my dad convinced this guy to put together a limited partnership and we were going to sell five $5,000 shares to get the 25 grand. He knew a guy who works on Wall Street. That guy gave him five grand and that's all we raised. Yeah, so basically uh, we raised $5,000. I convinced my dad to give me about another four and I basically tell him and this guy, with the nine, let me just go and shoot together uh, sort of a sizzle reel, a trailer, and we'll use that to raise more money. But I knew that I was going to try and shoot the entire film for $9,000. That was my goal. Um, so I set out, I put an ad in Backstage Magazine that basically says, you know, uh, no budget indie, non-union, no pay, but we'll feed you. It's New York City, so I probably got 2,500 headshots. Mm -hmm. Through all the headshots. And then there's some, you know, great stories about, you know, how I was able to get some of these actors, but you know, the part of Molly, the, the older brother's wife, probably auditioned 15, 20 actresses. And I'm thinking to myself, the, the script is terrible because the scenes that these uh, young actresses were reading just weren't playing. Um, and I'm sitting behind the camera shooting her audition. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this kid is good. Wow, maybe these scenes aren't so terrible. So... Connie ends up being cast in the movie and throughout the production, Connie was kind of like our, um, uh, you know, she was our ringer. We just knew like, okay, she's like really the super talented one here. Um, you know, when you're acting opposite her, you better bring your A game. And, and uh, so, so we get Connie in the movie. The other actors are all, uh, and like Connie, nobody had ever been on a set before. Nobody had ever been in front of a camera before. Um, and I set out to go uh, make this film. We probably shot about six days um, over the course of maybe three weeks. Um, and then I kind of run out of money. Um, but I don't let the cast know that. Um, and what I did do, we ended up shooting 12 days over the course of eight months. And what I would do is I would save up some money from work. I'd hit my dad up for a little bit of money. A camera guy was working with um, Dick Fisher would say, hey, look, uh, I'm not working this Saturday and Sunday. I have the camera. A buddy of mine can, is available to do sound. Who can you get from the cast that's available? And, you know, I would then go and say, all right, Jack and Mike are available. Let me see what scenes are still not shot. Or <laughs> and then the other crazy thing I did was it was, you know, we shot 16 millimeter. Right. We couldn't afford to buy any new cans of film. So oh, short ends. Short ends. Well, and 16, not even super 16, but 16 short ends. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like leftover stuff from industrials. <laughs> so, um, so it was cheaper for me to re-enroll in Hunter College for one class, which I think was probably, I don't know at the time, probably 300 bucks. 
um, so I can get a student ID because for the short ends with your student ID, it was something like 25% off or something like that. So I re-enroll in school Smart. in order to get the cheaper price on the short ends. But then, of course, when we can't afford to develop anything until we're done shooting. So eight months after we get these 12 days done, we develop stuff. And then, you know, from short ends, a lot of times some of that that film has already been exposed. So, you know, it made the editing a little bit easier when you knew like, OK, well, we're cutting that scene because we just don't have that scene. So wait a minute. So you had eight months that you had a bunch of film reels in your in your in your no. apartment. After those first six days, we're just, you know, Dick says, hey, I'm free on this day. I say, great. I go buy some film stock. Right. I call the actors. I come up with the, the scenes. We go shoot those two days. And then it's like, all right, when are we going to shoot again? I have no idea. But, but So how long were you with the movie in the can before you got it developed? All right. So after we, once we finished shooting, we had everything at that point. Then I go to the Duart Film Labs. And there was a great guy who ran the place named Dick Young, and Bob Smith. Those are the two guys who ran it. And to their credit, they were real supporters, supporters of indie film and young folks in New York trying to make it happen. So, you know, my dad went down with me there and explained to them, hey, I'll vouch for Eddie, but, um, you know, he's got this film. Here's all the, the film. We'd love to get it processed. Can't pay for it all now, but if you can defer those costs, we'll slowly pay it off over time. And they were generous, generous wow. enough to do So like, lay, almost like layaway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Their payment plan for for development that, that that world does not exist now. You have to find some very special people. I mean, could you imagine though trying to shoot an indie film on sixteen millimeter today on short ends? Like that's Did, why for me, and I've heard you talk about it as well. It is so exciting right now if you're a mm -hmm. young indie filmmaker that you can pick up this freaking thing, your phone, and go and make a feature that's going to look a hundred times better than Brothers McMullen. Look, oh. you know, hands down. Le the lenses you can get, the cameras you get. I mean, I shot I shot a whole feature on a, a little pocket camera uh, and just got vintage lenses and just went out and shot a movie in four days. And it, and it got into it. It looks stunning. Projected at the Chinese theater on a 2K up res. Stunning. Most beautiful wow. thing I've ever shot. And I've shot things with much bigger budgets. And yeah. it was just this little 1080p camera. It was just gorgeous. So, and now there's like four and six K cameras and like the yeah. little pockets and it's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So you, you edit the, so you got, get everything developed on the layaway. It's <laughs> a fucking great story. Uh, a layaway. Then you're editing it. I'm assuming what this is. No, it gets even crazier. So we yeah. transfer the film to beta because I work in beta SP. beta SP, of course. And uh, they cut the show on beta. So what me and Dick would do is, uh, at the end of the night, like if we had a movie premiere, let's say, because we mm -hmm. covered those things, we were the last people in the office. We'd leave the side door of the office open when we left, <laughs> go next door to the Mayflower Hotel, have a drink, come back into the building at midnight, and then edit till five in the morning using their um, editing bays. And the Without without permission, so yeah. always ask for forgiveness, never for permission. Exactly. So all right, so you you transfer everything to beta, because um, I used to cut on tape as well on beta SP. Is there a film print of this that's not a transfer from video? Did you ever go back to the neg on anything? Yeah, yeah. eventually did. Okay, but but, but but at first you just cut together a video edit of that. And yeah. did you color grade? You didn't color grade no. that. 
No, there's no color grade. Whatever it was, it was. Whatever it was, it was. No sound mix, no nothing. <laughs> um, other than, you know, we basically, at the time, we just borrowed all of this traditional Irish folk music from this musician named Seamus Egan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll tell you the story of, like, the great ending that happened for Seamus. But at the time, you know, I, I couldn't afford a composer, and I thought, all right, we'll just use needle drops from this guy. And he was a friend of a friend of a friend. So I mm-hmm. knew that I could get to him eventually. But at the time, I was like, I need music for the film. Right. I have no idea what's going to happen with this movie. And really, when I make the film, certainly you have the dream that maybe it'll get picked up for distribution. But as I said earlier, you know, for five years, I'm sending out my scripts. I can't get even a phone call back from an right. agent. I'm hoping the film will be something of a calling card and that maybe nothing else will go to a festival. Someone will see it and I'll get an agent. Um, so, uh, we cut the film, transfer it to VHS at the time. It's two hours long. Uh, we're both exhausted. I mean, I know it's still a rough cut, but you know, it's your first film. It's your baby. I don't know what scenes to cut. So, um, I knock off a bunch of, you know, VHS copies of it. And then I start the process of doing the same thing. I'm pouring through the trades. Who are the agents who are signing first-time filmmakers? Um, what are the film festivals? What are the production companies and the distribution companies? Uh, send it out everywhere, film festivals, a year's worth of rejections. Um, and then the, you know, the, the, the famous story is the, the Redford Sundance story. Right. Um, you know, I'm working at Entertainment Tonight. Redford is there to do press for, I believe it was Quiz Show. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know that, you know, obviously Redford, Sundance, I take one of these rough cuts with me. Um, and I have my little, you know, 30-second spiel uh, rehearsed so that when he gets up with his PR person, and usually you shoot these junkets in a, um, in a big hotel. So I know he's going to go out the main room. I'll go out the second bedroom, cut him off as he's getting into the elevator give him the spiel, hand him the tape, and we'll see what happens. So that's exactly what I do. And he listens to me and he says, oh, okay, now, great. Back well, to the we'll show. have someone take a look at it. And he hands it to his PR person and the elevator's door, the elevator door is closed. And that's it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I think, uh, well, I guess, you know, you know, I was kind of hoping he would want to, me to jump in the elevator and hear more about it. <laughs> and, and just get, take, take the private plane to his house and then, you know, all that stuff. Of course, of course. Then we're on our way. Doesn't work that way. But two months later, I'm at work um, and I get a phone call from Jeff Gilmore, who was the yeah. uh, uh, programmer at Sundance at the time. And Jeff says, hey, Eddie, so we're hey, Ed, we got this uh, movie here. It says it's a rough cut. Just want to know if you finished it. I lie. I say, yes, of course I did. He says, oh, it says a rough cut, two hours. What's the running time now? I say 95 minutes because, you know, the Chafot films, the Woody Allen films are all roughly, you know, not, you know under 100 right. minutes. So that's right. my job. And uh, he says, well, what, what scenes did you cut? And by this point now, you know, the, the movie's a year old. So mm-hmm. I've kind of seen it and, and I'm less in love with it. So there's a handful of scenes I know I want to cut. And then I just riff and name some other scenes. And he says, you know what? Actually, that sounds pretty good. All right, we'll be in touch. Two weeks later, they call up and they say you're in. So now that's probably September. So hold on a second. When you get that call, what is that? I mean, 
like I'm in the office and all of the guys that I work with, you know, the crew guys, yeah. they've all worked on the movie. You know, like they've all done sound for me. Right. They, yeah. so they, you know, like they know, you know, what we're doing with the editing machines. So they're all giving me high fives and everybody's cheering and like, I can't believe it. Holy shit. Sure. You know, yeah. Our little Eddie, our little Eddie's he he made good. He's he's gonna get he's gonna go to the show. <laughs> That's exactly exactly what it was like. So um so now though I have to raise another twenty-five grand at a minimum to finish the film, right. you know, because it's cut on beta. So I gotta go back to the negative, recut it, right, because yeah, um, and blow it up to thirty-five. And you know, I've never done that before. I don't know how to do that. You know, my student films that uh that I made. I cut myself on a little like moviola um, slicer. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to sync up your 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 mag sound to your picture and tape it together. I was like, I can't do that for a ninety-five minute long movie. So, right. um, I and I can't remember exactly how, but um, I'm put in touch with Ted Hope and James Sheamus at Good Machine, mm-hmm. and those are the guys who really, you know, quite honestly, at that time took me under their wing. Uh, they came on as producers, uh, and they helped me, you know, not only they taught me how to finish a film, but Ted was really invaluable in the editing room with me. You know, I knew, I knew 20 minutes I could cut out of the movie like that. That last 10, uh, was tough. And he gave me two great bits of advice. He goes, look, I'm telling you, you don't need the scene. And if the scene is so great, use it in another one of your films. Needless to say, needless to say, the scene is never so good that you end up revisiting it, or at least it wasn't in that case. The other thing he said is, um, how many times have you walked out of a movie and said, yeah, it was a pretty good movie, but there was that 20 minutes in the middle. It was a little, you know, kind of dragged there. Because nobody ever walks out of the theater and says, God, it was a movie, it was a really good movie, but it was too short. He's like, I'm telling you, let's get this thing down to 95. You got a nice pre- breezy comedy here, puts a smile on your face, mm-hmm. like get people in and out, and I'm telling you, they're going to enjoy it. And it was, I mean, it was great, great advice. And that's what we did. Um, so, and the interesting thing was because we were up against the deadline for Sundance, and I might have the dates exactly wrong, it's, you know, sure, sure. Ago, but I had to fly to Sundance for the start of the festival. And I don't know if they still do it, but they would have like a filmmaker orientation yeah. and the thing you did with all the filmmakers those first couple of days. Um, and our first screening is until four days after that. Ted has to stay in New York because like he has to wait for the blow up to happen. So do our blow up. Ted grabs it that day, goes to the airport, gets on the plane, flies to Sundance. We screen the next morning at the Egyptian. So I never even get to see the film projected. Until you're until at the Jesus Christ. And then, and then as, as the legend goes, then there's, there's, a, uh, was there a bidding war for it? Um, how'd that there was go? No bidding war. Um, we, uh, Tom Rothman at Fox Searchlight, you know, which was a brand new company. McMillan was the first movie they ever released. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he was at the first screening. And again, the funny thing is, so they tell us like, and maybe it was because of the Redford thing. Like there were, 18 movies in and we were the 19th. So even on my flight to Park City, there was like an article listing all the movies in competition. We weren't even mentioned. So we were a little bit of oh. the also ran. So you can imagine that. that oh, that, that, that feeling is like, I'm, 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 it's, are we, are we yeah, there? Yeah. It's cause you just can't pick up Bob and call Bob at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you can't 
can't even pick up a phone and do anything like that, right? <laughs> right. Um, um, so anyhow, you know, so we had a, a good crowd at the festival. We, I, again, to my memory, we did not have many buyers there other than uh, Searchlight. And at that screening, um, you know, it's pretty great. It's like the reaction is great. Got to meet a lot of people and a bunch of agents and managers. And afterwards, they're giving you their business cards. I'm like, got to come out to LA. We got to do lunch and all that. But, you know, Rothman was there. And that night um, over dinner, before even our second screening, we sold the movie to Searchlight. And what, if you mind me asking, what was the, the, the final sales for it? We sold it uh, for 250 Oh, jeez. You must have been ecstatic. <laughs> we were through the roof. I mean, we could not believe it. Jesus. Um, and we had some box office bumps built into that um, that would have gotten us to a half million. Uh, if the movie basically doubled Clerks' domestic box office, and I think Clerks at the time did 1.2 or something like that. Yeah. So the idea that the movie would do 2 million, they thought was an absurd notion. Like it'll never get there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, um, there's no stars in it. It's, you know, it was a $27,000 movie. Yeah, none of the indie movies did. None of those little ones that we talked about, you know, they would do 400, 500, 600. Yeah, mariachi, mariachi, I think. Mariachi with Columbia Pictures pushing it and put a million dollars in remastering it. Still only pulled in like a couple mil, like two or three really? mil theatrically, yeah. if I remember correctly. So it wasn't like it was a blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, but yours was. <laughs> yeah, so then we end up making, you know, it ends up doing $10 million. Jesus. Uh, which is just, you know, just nuts. But the, 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 you know, I was talking about the guys at Good Machine. And the other great bit of advice was from James Seamus. And he was like, look, Eddie, when you're at the festival, who knows if we're going to sell the movie? But right. I'm telling you, like those 10 days you will never be hotter. Like there's a feeding frenzy that happens at the festival. And, you know, and we see it every year, you know, these movies that sell for a ton of money at the festival that, you know, whether they warrant or not, who cares? Like filmmakers are getting paid. That's a good thing. Um, but he's like, you better have another screenplay in your hand because they will ask you, what do you want to do next? And if you could hand them a script and say, I'm doing this next, you'll get that thing greenlit in a hurry. So I quickly wrote basically what I thought was a funnier version of Brothers McMullen because we didn't really think we would sell Brothers McMullen. Right. So that movie was She's the One. And, you know, <laughs> Rothman basically said what Seamus said he was going to say. What do you want to do next? I said, I want to do this. Here's the script for She's the One. And within a week, that was greenlit. So, you know, I go out to L.A. for the first time in my life as a guy who sold a movie to Fox Searchlight and now – I've got my second film greenlit with a $3 million budget. And that is the, again, the lottery ticket. That is absolutely the lottery ticket. And I, and I constantly, if you've heard the podcast, you know, I've, I've talked about it so many times that filmmakers think that that is, that's the, that's the plan. I'm like, no dude, that is not the plan. Eddie, he did not plan. You didn't plan any of this. It no. just, you were just like, dude, if I get an agent out of this, I'll be ecstatic. <laughs> Now my, you know, my, my producing partner, Aaron Lubin, who you, who you yeah. got to talk to, you know, uh, he talks about it as the bullseye. You know, when we're making our micro budget movies, right. you know, we always talk about like the bullseye is not a business plan. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just because, you know, uh, the big sick, for example, a more recent movie that went on to do really great businesses in the film work. 
doesn't mean, you know, your film, my film, anyone's film is going to do that business. Like that is the bullseye. Uh, you've got to come up with, that's why like, I love your book when you talk about identifying the niche audience that you've got to find and really thinking about back then you, you did not need to think about the audience in the same way because there were so few indie movies being made. I mean, there's still, there were hundreds, but it's not like today. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. No, now there's hundreds a, a day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 no, it's insane. I, trust me, I know. I talk to these guys every day. I talk to filmmakers all the time and I'm seeing it because it, the, the best and the the best, the good news is anyone can make a feature film. The bad news is anyone can make a feature film. Yeah. It's, 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 there's a gluttony of product and play. Yeah. And, and that's. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've spoken at film schools and film classes over the yeah. years and people bring that up. And, well, why should you? Are there too many films? And is it, you know, now that there's no barrier to entry, you know, I'm like, hey, what's the difference? Now it's the it's the equivalent of a kid who can pick up an acoustic guitar and just start writing songs. Right. right? And he can throw them on to his, you know, however you would, you know, on your garage band on your laptop. What's the harm in that? Like, you know, you can make a movie for a couple of thousand bucks now. Why discourage anybody from doing that? Because what may end up happening is someone is going to create that movie that is the equivalent to, to, you know, Bob Dylan kind of reinventing sort of, you know, folk music or rock and roll in the mid 60s. You know, there will be a version of the Ramones that come from the indie film scene and someone who kind of just was like, hey, I only got five grand. I'm going to make this little movie. Um, and I think the best the best advice I've ever heard about that because uh, you know you're right you're absolutely right but it's about um, finding that voice that thing that makes you special like Brothers McMullen was spawned from you dude like that's just, just such your that's that's definitely something in your wheelhouse from your personal experience and meant something to you like I can't write Brothers McMullen I would write it based on stuff I've seen it's not something I experienced but like my last movie I shot Ego and Desire which is about filmmakers trying to sell their movie at Sundance, I can talk about that <laughs> very clearly. And I can talk about the pain and the suffering of filmmakers because that is something that's really, in my perspective, that's my voice. And that's what filmmakers, I think, today, they're like, oh, I'm going to make a Brothers McMullen or I'm going to make a Mariachi or I'm going to make a, a Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, no, man, you, you failed from the moment you started. You yeah. got to do something that is really true to your own voice because that's the only kind of secret sauce we've got, right? Yeah. To stand yeah. out. No, that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I mean, I've told people like this, you know, I mean, I, as you said, I am one of the lucky ones, right? I got the, the the lottery ticket. And it is still after 25 years, and it was hard after three years. You know, once my third movie tanked at the box office, you know, it I, it's back to pushing that giant boulder up the hill. It has never gotten easier. Um, uh, and the only reason to stick with it is because you don't have a choice is because you love this thing so much. You have to do it. Like if you want to do it for all the other reasons, you think it's a cool gig, you want to be famous, you want to make a pile of dough, whatever those other reasons are, forget about it. It is too hard. It is too filled with disappointment and constant rejection that, you know, if, if you're not in it because you have no choice, you know, the movie gods have called you and they said, hey, man, this is what you're doing. Like it or, or 
you know, you, you, you're in it no oh. matter what. That's the deal. No, dude, listen, I've tried to, I've tried to quit the, I've tried to quit this crazy a bunch of times and I can't, man. I can't, I've tried, I've, I've stepped out a bit for maybe a few years, but I, my foot was always back in it. I've yeah. literally tried to quit it. It's like a bad drug, man. Like you can't, you can't quit it because it's just something that is, it's inside of you. It's like, you can't not be an artist. It's so well, hard. I look at all the films I've made and I've made a couple that, you know, really just like they didn't work in any way. Right. Yeah. Critics didn't like them. Couldn't sell them. When we finally sold them, it was one of those terrible deals you speak about in your book. You know, the uh, no advanced partnership with the shady distribution company. <laughs> does, he, does he have a cigar? And he's like, hey, kid, just give me a poster. <laughs> but here's the thing. While making every one of those films, I had a blast. Like right. you're on set working with these actors, watching them bring your words to life. And on every single film I've done, I've met someone or worked with someone who has become either a lifelong friend or a lifelong filmmaking partner. You know, my director of photography, a guy named Will Rexer, he and I are, I mean, absolute best friends. The first film we did together is a movie you probably never even heard of called Looking for Kitty. And we did on a lark because we wanted to shoot on that new Panasonic with the the oscillating glass filter oh, that you would did you, put on the did, did you Which one did you, not the Panasonic DVX. Did you shoot it on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, one. you shot it on the DVX, so you got the adapter. So exactly. you got the, you got the adapter to put that. Oh, yeah, man, I've shot my first short on the DVX. I oh, edited yeah. it on Final I Cut Pro 4. And, you know, at the time, John Sloss had a company, uh, what the hell are they called? But they were doing a bunch of movies with that camera. I think, was it, it was a movie with, Katie Holmes. Yeah, the, the, the um, uh, Pieces of April. Pieces of April. That was sort of the biggest success of those. But that was shot on that camera, and they were doing these movies for uh, $250,000. They got a special agreement with the unions uh, so you can make a union film for two fifty dollars with that camera as long as you abide by certain things. So I heard that. I was like, I'm all in. Let's do it. Um, and we quickly wrote a script, and we thought, we'll just hire our friends We'll kind of improvise it. And the movie just, I mean, it really just didn't work. But the great thing is, that's how I met Will. So, um, you know, even though it's tough and it's brutal and filled with disappointment, it's always kind of fun. No, it, it, that's that's what this whole journey is about, man. It's about those relationships. It's about those experiences. And I think a lot of filmmakers make that big mistake of uh, the end game. Like the 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 what is the end game? Is it when the movie's finished? Is it when it gets sold? Is it when it gets to a festival? Like what is the moment where the end happens? And if you're only looking for the end, you're going to be disappointed constantly. But if you're enjoying the ride, then that's a career. That's a life because you get, I mean, and that's something that I so admire about you and your career is that you seem to be just having a good time um, well, making these movies. Story connected to that. And, and that thing you're speaking about the, 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 the journey, you know, um, Aaron and I, we made this movie in 2012, uh, Fitzgerald's Family Christmas. Yeah. And what we did with that was the idea, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but I I acted in this movie with Tyler Perry, who obviously very successful. He's he's, he's doing okay. He's doing okay. He's doing all right. (laughs) He says to me, hey man, he's like, you know, those first two movies you made, they were so successful. And then you never go back and do anything about Irish families again. What? Because you got to super serve your niche to even to your point. He's like, I guarantee you, the people that love those two movies would love another sort of Irish family movie from you. And then, you know, we can talk further, like, you know, think about an evergreen title. 
Christmas movie. That's something that every year you can kind of hopefully resell. So I kind of had this idea and I had just made two other micro budget movies. I made a movie called Nice Guy Johnny for, you know, in the camp for 25 grand. That's a good story about why I made that movie. Then we made a movie on the Canon 5D, Newlyweds, got it in the camp for 9,000. So through those two films, speaking of like, uh, you know, movies that you know, were kind of successful in the, in the micro budget world, but my casts were great. And I found all these great young new actors in New York. So I was like, all right, so Fitzgerald, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my, my new family of cast members and marry them to my old family of cast members that I work with. Connie Britton, Mike McGlone, mm-hmm. the woman who plays the mom, Anita Gillette. Um, and so it was sort of like, all right, we'll bring the whole family of our, our all of our actors together um, and make this movie. Uh, so we make the movie for $250,000 all in. And um, I forget what festival we're trying to get into. We don't get in. Aaron and I are devastated. And now we're waiting for Toronto. Everything is hanging on. If we get into Toronto, it's a whole new world for us. Like, you know, to get back to that level of a prestigious festival, we get into Toronto. We're high-fiving. You know, we think it's going to be great. We go to Toronto. Our screenings are great. But what doesn't happen is, you know, we don't sell the movie for millions of dollars. You know, we are not the McMullen story of Toronto. We're another one of the movies that played at a big festival. And as we're getting on the plane to fly home to New York, I was like, you remember the, like, the, the endless like weeks of anticipation leading up to, did we hear from Toronto? Did we get in? Yeah, we went. I was like, anything different today than on that last day when we wrapped? Nothing. Not a single thing is different. So why do we get obsessed with the idea of, you know, getting into these festivals? It's great and it's fun. But really, at the end of the day, the filmmaking experience was a blast. We worked with all of our friends. The outcome, really, and I know people say, oh, that's bullshit. I don't believe that you don't, you know, you you don't look at your, you know, uh, your reviews or care about the box office. I'm telling you, after 26 years, it's nice when the good stuff comes. But we really don't. It's like we just know, hey, whatever happens, good or bad, another 18 months from now, we'll have another script done and we'll figure out how to make, you know, we'll try and get six million to do it. If we can't do that, we'll figure out the, you know, $200,000 version of the movie. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um. No. And that and that's and that's only someone who's uh, who's got a couple of grays in their wis- in, in their in their uh, in their in their beard that can say things like that. Trust yeah. me, I've got a couple myself. Yeah, I see it, so, I see it. so it's it, yeah, exactly the gray beards. But the thing is that, but when you're 20, you can't you don't can't, you don't grasp that yet when no. you're when you're young. You just don't grasp it because you just haven't been down the road yet. So I hope people who are in their 20s are listening to these two old farts talking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to speak for you, sir, but this old fart. Uh, <laughs> good. I'm an old fart. Yeah, so you know these two old farts talking about the olden days. Um, but there's a reason why. Um, what is it? There's a saying in my wife's Colombian, and she she has a, a saying, a Spanish saying that says, uh, "The devil is more of the devil, not because he's the devil, but just because he's just been around for a long time." Mm. And it's it's, it's, it's something like that it translates into that, and it's. Uh, 
it's so true. It's like you just know because you've just been around long. Yeah. Now, I have to ask you, though, when you jump from McMullen to She's the One, that's a slight budget difference. Um, and also a slight cast difference as far as the prestige of the actors you were dealing with. Because I know Cameron, uh, Cameron Diaz was in it. Um, and obviously, and, Jen, and Jennifer Aniston was in it. Was Jen was just starting. Was Friends, Friends was still a, a thing at that point, right? Or not yet? So, yeah, it's funny. Like, nobody was a star yet. So Jennifer had, I think it was, it was after the first season of Friends. Yeah. So, you know, she's an actress on a sitcom. And right. granted, the sitcom's very successful, but it isn't like Friends. You know, whoever would have been the big, you know, female movie star at that time. Right. Um, you know, and she came in and auditioned and was great. And, you know, I mean, like, uh, and just crushed the part. Cameron was in the mask at right. that time. You know, so again, no one, you know, Cameron Diaz wasn't a household name by, by any stretch. That she was, oh, she's the girl from the mask. Right. She's the girl from the mask. You know, a couple of years later, something about Mary, different deal. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, it's interesting, like two actors who, you know, an actress who kind of was the runner up to Jennifer's part and the actress who was sort of my second choice for Cameron's part, we end up casting in the movie. And that was uh, Leslie Mann and Amanda Peet mm-hmm. were also in that movie. Um, so the real, the, the heavy hitter that we had at the time, like the actor to be intimidated by as a really, a, really first time director mm. was John Mahoney. Yeah. You know, um, and I knew John Mahoney from Eight Men Out and Moonstruck. Yeah, yeah. he's, yeah, he's a legend, a legend, a legend. So how do you do, so as a, as a first, quote unquote first time filmmaker, like in a professional environment, how do you handle dealing with the, I mean, the, I mean, obviously you didn't have any giant movie stars that you were dealing with. You had professional actors like seasoned professional actors how was that adjustment from no money over 12 months with short ends to now on a three million dollar budget and a little bit more breathing room i'd say two things one the adjustment to working with the actors i i would say really wasn't much of an adjustment because nobody had a ton of experience we were all the same age you know we're all just kids in our 20s doing it you know what i mean it wasn't like i was working with like Nick Nolte and, you know, like a, a bunch of seasoned vets. Mm-hmm. We're all like a bunch of kids making an indie movie in New York. So it was like, we're just hanging out and became friends. So there was no real intimidation factor um, on set with the actors. Where I was truly intimidated was like walking onto set day one. We had a scene at the airport at JFK. We got half the terminal closed. Jesus. I saw, you know, there's 150 people there that are my crew. Now, granted, I've met my department heads. We've been through pre-production together. You know, I have good relationships with them. But when you, you know, step onto the set and 150 people look at you and you're 27 years old and they're like, all right, what's first up? And you're like, okay. (laughs) Here we, here we go. When the, when the doll, when the dolly grip has, has shot probably 70 or 80 features and they're looking, I had to believe when you walked in at 27, you know that some of these crew guys were like, this son of a bitch how did this guy get this and did you get that vibe on some of this stuff uh (laughs) there was probably some of that but it's funny you mentioned the dolly group it was a it was a tough old guy named huff of course his name was huff (laughs) he didn't say two words to me for about the first two weeks but eventually you know Mm -hmm. i uh i think i won him over you broke you broke them down. You broke them down. I've had, when I was that when I was that young directing on big sets, uh, doing my my commercials and stuff. I would the same thing, man. You would walk in; and these guys are just like, "Who's yeah. this?" Like they have to smell you for the first like half day before, like, "Oh, does this guy even know what he's doing?" 
But the, the fun thing from that is uh, there was a PA on that film right. named Stuart Nikolai. And I'm, so I'm 27 at the time. He's probably 23. It's right. his first gig in the film business out of college. And he works in the location department. Right. Now, he's been my location, uh, main location scout on, you know, I did a public, I uh, did a TV show a couple of years ago called Public Morals. We mm-hmm, did the TV mm-hmm. show we're doing now, Bridge and Tunnel. So, you know, again, back to the relationships thing, you know, he's a PA who's my age. We become friends. You know, I ended up, you know, he worked on uh, uh, Sidewalks of New York. So over time, you know, as he kind of moved up the rung, he then became sort of my locations guy. So. And you never know who you, you're going to meet along the way. Look at that, like the PA guy. I, I was talking to somebody the other day. It's like the PA on... No, it was Scott. Scott was uh, Scott Mosier was saying the the PA on Mallrats ended up getting him the job or introducing him to the job that got him the the Grinch when he just directed the Grinch, the animated feature. And it was wow. just because of that relationship, he was just cool and they stuck together. But if he would have been a dick to him back then, yeah. that's it. There was no there's no game. Um, now, the the one thing I out of all of our out of all those contemporaries that you had in that time period in the nineties, um, I think and remind me if I'm wrong, you're the only one that became also a full fledged actor, as well. Was there? I know Tantino pops in and out, but like, you know, you go off and act alone, yeah. and yeah. don't direct everything you act in. So you were one of those guys. So you have a unique perspective on this because. Uh, after she's the one, you worked on another little independent film called Saving Private Ryan um, with uh, an unknown director, <laughs> Mr. Spielberg, at the time. Dude, what was that like, man? Like, I'm just being on that show and watching, I mean, the masterwork. Yeah. So, I mean, as you can imagine, as a, so I, I said, well, first up, it was like, for me, it was graduate film school. Right. And I was very lucky, you know. When we were sort of uh, uh, probably two days before shooting, when we're doing sort of our, our show and tell and showing him what we look like in our uniforms and how we handle the weapons and all that, um, I said, you know, I hope you don't mind if when we're shooting, if I could just, you know, kind of hang out and look over your shoulder. He's like, Eddie, whatever you want to do. Like just, you know, you're in this movie. You're welcome to, you know, stay on set all day long if you want um, so I took advantage of that and, you know, used it as an opportunity to go to graduate film school. Um, and uh, it's funny, you know, you mentioned before, like showing up on the set of She's the One and, and you know, the, the intimidation and also working with actors. And I will say on that film and, uh, and probably I did it on McMullen, I'm sure as well, I thought the role of the director was to be directing the actors all the time. So after a take, I'd say cut, and then I thought I had to have some notes. And I'd say, oh, maybe try doing it this way, or try doing it that way, or could you give me some of this, or give me some of that. Um, which Spielberg, you know, we got a gang of us on that, an ensemble, where there's some days where there's, you know, five of us. And for almost two weeks, he calls action and cut, and that's it. And we do three takes and moving on. We start thinking, he hates us, he thinks we're terrible. Uh, and we're waiting for the new pages of the script to show up to discover that we're all going to die long before we find, you know, Matt Damon. Right. Um, uh, and then finally, we have a day where he's like, cut, 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 Eddie, come on over here. Do me a favor. I, I need you to try and do this. And, you know, Adam, 
you know, to Adam Goldberg, you know, I just kind of feel like you're rushing through this. Maybe slow it down. And so he gives us all these notes. And, you know, at lunch that day, you know, of course, we're all talking, why do you think you give us the notes today? <laughs> so at lunch, we go over and we talk to him. He says, you know, we ask him. And he said, well, today you didn't know what the hell you were doing. And he went over to school. And he's like, look, I hire professionals. I assume that you've done your homework and that you show up in the morning prepared. So I'm not going to jump on you after your first take and uh, sort of hurt your confidence by suddenly giving you a note. I assume it's going to take you three or four takes to find your way into it. Now, some actors can get it on the first take and slowly fall apart. But he's like, I got an ensemble here with some scenes where I got five guys, you know, all talking. I sit back and I let you do it and I'll let you figure it out. And, you know, for two weeks you did until today. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So today I stepped in and that absolutely changed my approach with work. Next movie I made, Sidewalks of New York. And and granted, I was, you know, I worked with Stanley Tucci and Dennis Farina and, uh, you know, Rosario Dawson, which is, you know, probably a second movie. Um, But on that film... That's what I did. I was just like, I'm going to sit back and let them show me what they've prepared. You know, and I, you know, you work with someone like Stanley, you know, the first take, he does it the way that it's scripted. The second take, he kind of plays with it a little bit. And then he sees that you're giving him room to play. And then he kind of really does his thing. And you're like, thank God I did not step in early and give him a note. Because now he feels so comfortable. And he's just giving me all of this great material. And that's the way I work. So I I very rarely give any direction now unless an actor is sort of taking it off into a direction that's completely wrong. You know, I mean, the big one I do because, um, you know, I kind of do these talky New York movies is speed up the pace. You know, my New York actors kind of get the the cadence of how I I want the characters to speak. Uh, Sometimes other actors need to... um, to just uh, speed it up a little bit. And that's was that the biggest lesson that you? Is that the biggest lesson you learned watching him direct? Uh, that and I guess the second one was um, if something that he has pre-planned doesn't work, he doesn't beat the dead horse. You know, like we had a pretty complicated steady cam shot where he's trying to link a bunch of us together. And he probably did it about four or five times, and I could tell him and Yanish, the uh, DP, they just weren't happy with it. And, you know, I mean, like, it's a big, it's a big scene. You know, there's squibs going off and stuff. And he's like, yeah, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. And he kind of goes off, and he takes, you know, five or ten minutes, and he's looking at the scene, and he goes, okay, scratch what we did. I got a new way to shoot it. And we took a a totally different approach into the scene. Uh, We did a scene with the dog tags, where um, we shot it as scripted before lunch. And it was another one of those scenes where he just, he's like, ah, I don't know, I don't like it. It's just, I'm not happy with it. Pulled us all together to lunch. He goes, guys, do me a favor, just improvise something here. Uh, I just want you to riff for 20 minutes. Go through the dog tags. And you know, the funny story is in doing that, I read off a bunch of dog tags and I name a bunch of guys that I went to grammar school with. And they had... Um, you know, the, I forget what writer was on set that day, but they recorded the, the improv. And then from that, they rewrote the screen, the, that scene, and we shot sort of a new version of it after lunch. 
Um, so A, the good thing was I got to plug all my buddies' names in the movie, and it's still there. Mike Cesario, Gary Ianico, and Vinny Rubino. Yeah. Um, so they love that, right? To be oh, can you imagine? I mean, I, like you're sitting in the room, you're sitting there going, yeah, sitting there, and I didn't tell any of them. So they're sitting in the theater, like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyhow, like that was a very valuable lesson, too. Like, you know, in your gut, and I'm sure you can speak to this as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. you have to trust your gut. Like, you oh. know, when it doesn't work and when it's not funny or it just, you know, it feels whatever your gut is telling you that and a lot of times you just you know you're afraid to make that kind of change on set because you know it's at stake right it's money it's time um and seeing steven with with a movie that big to make those kind of changes we did not have you know we shot that movie it was scheduled to shoot 66 days we wrapped in 58 that's how efficient the filmmaker he is. Jesus Christ, right? man. So, uh, you know, the other thing was, you know, we shot all handheld, available light, sometimes two and three cameras going to for a dialogue scene. So, you know, the movie I make after that, Sidewalks of New York, not only did I steal the directing style, but that's how I came up with the pseudo-doc style. I was like, he's shooting this like an independent movie. Like, we're banging through scenes here because the camera's on, you know, the, the operator's shoulder. Uh, we're shooting available light. People are overlapping dialogue. I was like, all right, that's my next indie movie. I'm doing a pseudo doc for that very reason. Yeah. And, and I shot my last film in a pseudo doc documentary. Yeah. And honestly, watching all of your DVDs, because you are so generous with your commentaries, mm. reading your book, which, by the way, if anyone has not read Independent Ed, you got to, I, I read this thing front to cover to cover before I made my first features. And I list, I, I literally went out and bought every available DVD. If it had a commentary, I got, I got the special edition McMullen and she's the one I got. I, and you, that whole style of like just getting out and going to do it like newlyweds. I was just like, you know what? That's that I can do. I can go out and do that because as filmmakers you get like, especially if you, you know, especially if you are, a professional filmmaker who's maybe done commercials, maybe worked in bigger budgets or worked in posts. And there's a, there's kind of, you get up your own ass in a way because you're like, Oh, I need a red. I need an Alexa. I need, I can't make this movie for less than 7 million. Like these are the kind of things that you tell yourself. And then when you bust out like newlyweds, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, I got that gear. I can go do this too. Like, screw it. Let's, let's go out and build something. Um, it's, it was extremely inspirational, man. And that's, and that's one of the big things about your career that I followed over the years, man, is that you have no need to go back and make a $9,000 movie. You have no need to go make a a, a quarter million dollar movie. You don't need to do that. You, Mm -hmm. you could have very comfortably kept acting, maybe get one, one movie every four or five years. That's four or 5 million or 6 million or something like that. Uh, do some TV show. There's no need for you to go back and do indies, but you keep going back. And that's that respect for the, for that indie, that indie, you never left the indie roots. You you go and play in the big budget stuff, no question, but you come back and that's like, there's no other, I can't think of many other filmmakers of your, of your generation that does that. So man, thank you for keep doing that and inspiring us. I mean, it goes back to, A, it's fun, right? I I just like, you know, and and you've done some bigger budget stuff, so you know what it can be like sometimes to deal with, you know, and I I have plenty of friends who work in the studio business, and they're great people, and they're easy to work with. 
but it's a different process. Mm-hmm. You know, in the book, I talk about sort of the uh, times when Aaron and I will sit down and be like, okay, um, kind of, we got to make a movie this year. What do we want to do? We'll talk about our two lists of compromises. And the two lists of compromises we work off of are sort of, okay, if we're going to have to go ask someone for money, whether it's a million, two million, ten million, there are certain compromises that are going to come with that money. A is they will fully expect to have a say in a lot of the decisions, um, you know, starting with title of the movie, some notes on the script, who you're going to cast. If you're going to ask someone for $5 million or $10 million, whether it's a studio or um, some uh, indie financing, uh, they are absolutely going to give you a list of names that you need to cast from in order to get that money. Um, The other thing is uh, when you do get one of those actors and you've got your $10 million, the good news is you're going to have a much easier time selling that movie. You've got a big, bold-faced name on your on your poster, which is going to excite the folks at Netflix or wherever, right? So that's one set of compromises. The other set of compromises are the ones where it's like, okay, we're going to make a movie for $25,000. And, you know, here are the compromises we know we're going to have to make. We're not going to get a star, okay? Um, we're not going to get all the locations we want. We're going to have to be down and dirty. Odds are we're not going to make any money. You know, our fees are going to be sort of uh, coming on the back end if the movie's successful. Um, and we know it's going to be almost impossible to sell. So what do we want to do this year? <laughs> you know, like, do we actually want to go make a movie, which is the $25,000 version, or do we want to spend the next two to three years trying to get that big name, try, A, just trying to get the money, then trying to get the actor, and then trying to get that movie up and running? And that is never a six-month process. That is never a 12-month-long process. That is several years of your life. And that's the one thing I I want people to understand because a lot of people – look at you and you're like, oh, it's Ed Burns. He could just call up a buddy of his that he's worked with and just like, hey, can you, Tom, Tom Hanks, can you come by and do my $25,000? And they just think that you can, because you're in the system and you've been in the system, you've had success, that you can just make things happen. And the more I talk to filmmakers in the space, Oscar winners, and super, it's the same story for all of them other than Mr. Spielberg. And even then he had to go to India to get money for Lincoln. Like it still was a challenge for him. Everyone, filmmakers still have trouble, still have all the same problems, different levels, but still the same thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's, I mean, it just is never easy. And now look, if you're making a certain type of film, uh, I don't want to say that that's easier, but, you right. know, there are certain films that, you know, that, let's say are more obviously commercial. You know, I was a kid when I'm in film school, you know, I'm full. I, I am not the guy who is falling in love with Star Wars and wanting to go make those kind of films. I did not love action films. You know, I mean, I loved Last Picture Show and Tender Mercies and HUD and I wanted to make you know, small little dramas, or I loved, you know, films like The Graduate, The World According to Garp, and like I said, Truffaut, Woody Allen, I wanted to make, you know, talky comedy dramas. Um, then there's, you know, that, that 
the, the, the marketplace for those films um, has all but disappeared. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, if I wanted to call Tom Hanks, you know, it would probably, I'd have a much easier time getting him if I had a sort of big budget idea movie as opposed to one of my talking little films. Right. Um, so packaging so, together a bigger movie would probably be a little easier for you, but yet there's still hurdles and things you're going to have to do with still, well. it's still yeah, Scheduling. Years and, you know, a lot of your good friends, you know, people you've worked with, who you've got a relationship with, it still takes, you know, who are big movie stars. And they still don't get back to you for six months. You know, especially <laughs> when you're like, you know, because you're trying to get them attached to raise your money. Right. You're, you're going through like, the... Hey, look, you got a $6 million offer here. Like, forget about Burns' script, all right? Go to work. Right, exactly. And then you still got to jump through those hoops and there's scheduling issues and there's agents. It's like, look, I, I know Eddie's doing his thing, but there's 6 million bones right here. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. He's, he's still trying to find his money. And that's the thing I want filmmakers to understand, that it, there is no magic key there's no there's no end of the rainbow that we all still have to deal with that even at at the level that you're dealing with um and the kind of a success that you've had in your life in your career you like when you just said that you're like yeah i that, that screws Bur cruz burns script i got six million dollars right here go with this i seen those conversations <laughs> i've been part of those conversations in agents room like yeah son of a like it's so hard i mean unless they're like your wife or your brother and even then they're like look man i love you and all but i got 10 million dollars to go do this other movie <laughs> right yeah and look you know i mean plenty of actors will do it but typically it is you know their passion project right you know, when they're gonna go cut their fee to go do something a lot of times and you know as well they should you know it's like they don't necessarily want to help you make your passion project they've got that script they've been sitting on for years and they're slowly putting it together and trying to get the financing together. So, um, that, so it's something that you talk about in your book, which is brothers McMullen 2.0. Um, can you break down what brothers McMullen 2.0? Cause it's something that I used extensively in my last two features. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I I'll back up a little bit cause it's kind of interesting how my career kind of has panned out. Right. So, I, for my first four films, you know, it's McMullen, she's the one, a movie called No Looking Back, which really didn't do well, and Sidewalks of New York. They all did, you know, pretty well. And I credit that to the fact that I'm still a kid, a screenwriter, who believed in outlining before he wrote his scripts. I still am a student of the game. I am not so arrogant to think that I don't need to go back and kind of, you know, play within a three-act structure and, and really kind of have a, an outline that's, that's airtight before I sit down to write, right? After that, I decide for whatever reason, you know, whether it's laziness or arrogance, um, I stop outlining. And then I make four movies. I make, and these are the four you probably never heard of, or maybe you have, most people would. Mm -hmm. Wednesday, Looking for Kitty, The Groomsman, and Purple Violet, right? Mm -hmm. All four movies get terrible reviews. All four movies don't work at the box office. And then after that, I am in director's jail. Like I really, I have my next script. Um, and for about two years, I can't get it financed. I'm having a very tough time getting actors attached. You know, at first we were looking for 8 million, then six, then four, then two. Then we're down to like 1.2. 
And Aaron and I have a meeting in uh, the Hollywood Hills at some guy's house. And again, you know, you talk about the guy with the cigar sticking out of the side of his mouth. Oh, no. One of those deals. And still, they're kind of telling me how I need to make this movie. And Aaron and I go back to the hotel I'm staying in in L.A. And we have a drink at the bar. And I'm like, it's over, man. Like, how did this happen? Like, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I was the guy who made Brothers McMullen. And now we're up here. And this guy's telling us we got to rewrite the script based on his notes for a million dollars. I said, it's over, man. We are in director's jail. And... Over those beers, we're kind of joked around, like, how is it that when I was 24, I was able to write the Brothers McMullen, and with no connections and no money, and I didn't know how to make movies, I was able to make a movie that was, you know, still to this day, my most financially successful film. I was like, or then he was like, well, why don't we just do that again? So there on the napkin at the bar, we came up with McMullen 2.0, which was Basically, the rules were how we made McMullen, and we wouldn't uh, divert from that. So $25,000 to get it in the can, 12 days of shooting, three-man crew, all unknown actors. All actors had to bring their own uh, wardrobe, had to do their own hair and makeup, and every location we had to get for free. All right? So that was basically those were the rules. And the next day, we sat down. Um, and we started, oh, and we said, and we have to do an outline. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so you learned a little, you learned a little bit of those last four movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, um, we, uh, we both loved the graduate. Um, and you know, I remember we were talking about the movie sideways, yeah. uh, which we both loved. And we're like, all right, let's just, it'll be two guys. Let's just start with two guys. And we just started riffing and over time it turned into a, a, a kid and his uncle instead of two best friends. But, you know, and that's why I think for people like if they, if they don't know what to write or they kind of have an idea, uh, but they, 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 they need, you know, sometimes it's OK to go look at one of your favorite films and almost start to tell your story within the framework of their story. Right. Like you could look at. You know, I know, uh, let's say I'm Brothers McMullen. I, at a certain point when I was hitting the wall, I looked at Hannah and her sisters and I was like, oh, okay, I see what he's doing here. He's kind of weaving those three stories together and then they come together. It seems to be every 15 pages in the script. All right, so let me, I got to cut and paste this scene and move it there. So that's a very valuable tool, I think, if you're a young screenwriter, because you know, even if you rip off the structure of your favorite film for your first draft, you're going to do, you should do, you know, 20, 25 drafts of your script. By the time you do those 25 drafts, you know, uh, it would be unrecognizable if you're, if you're playing with some structure stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyhow, um, uh, what was I talking Oh, 2.0. Um, so that's what we did. We just started outlining and, you know, Rip maybe in six months and then said, let's go do it. And then you was the first one on 2.0. Was that nice guy, Johnny? That was nice guy, Johnny. Yeah. And that was 25 grand. Um, and then that did well, right? That actually. Well, well, we knew, you know, the other thing that happened was the movie that I spoke about that didn't do well, Purple Violence. Right. Um, that was a movie it was actually okay. That movie. Um, we couldn't get, uh, we were offered a couple of, um, distribution offers but again like your book talks about it was really bad deals you know there was mm-hmm. no chance 
that our investor was going to get any of her money back if we went with that. And it would be your typical New York, LA, one screen. If we do decent, maybe they'll give us a few other markets, but we, we, we could see the writing on the wall. At that time, iTunes had just launched, uh, they had the music for a couple of years, but they just launched the movie sort of page of it. And I was starting to watch a lot of movies on iTunes. So I was like, all right, why don't we go to iTunes and we'll, maybe they'll release us as their first ex- all-exclusive feature film. And because it was a new, basically a, a new bit of business of them, uh, of theirs, uh, they said, yeah, so Purple Vows was the first movie ever released exclusively on iTunes. And, uh, for transactional, for transactional. For a transaction, yeah. Um, and it did great. You know, I mean, it didn't do, it didn't make its money back, but like we saw what those numbers were and we're like, okay, so we make a movie for $25,000 all in 125 with post. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Based on what Purple Violets did, we know we're going to, you know, we're going to make some real money here. So that was the plan. And it did. So, so for everyone listening though, what year was this? This the- is, uh, 2009 to 2010 is when it comes out. Okay. So that's 10. <laughs> it is, does not exist anymore. So everyone listening, like I'm going to do what Ed Burns did. I'm like, nope, no TVOD for independent films is essentially dead unless you can drive traffic. Um, yeah. the, the, the finding you on iTunes thing is gone. Um, and even at that time, I mean, think about it. We're basically, you know, we have an aggregator distributing that title, but because, you know, we're really the first one sort of embracing (laughs) iTunes, we're getting a banner on the landing page. Like when you go to iTunes, it was like nice guy, Johnny, you know, we were, we ended up being the number fourth most rented title for one of the months that it was out, which was unheard of. So nice guy, Johnny did very well then. Yeah. Nice guy, Johnny did very well. Yeah. Right. And then then did as well. And right, and then and then you did your then you did a movie called Newlyweds, which was nine thousand, which was, you know, when I saw that, I was just like, wow, this is it's it's in apartments, it's on the street, he's stealing all the locations, you know, it's just like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, and, and it just and that one did extremely well as well, right? Yeah. So um, that's well, we amazing. knew when we finished Johnny, we had a blast doing it, mm-hmm. and then we. You know, and we turned it around real quickly and we saw that it was it was working. Um, I had just read an article about people who were shooting commercials on the 5D. Mm-hmm. So I, literally that day, I jump on the train. I go up to B&H on 34th Street. Mm-hmm. I buy the 5D. I call my DP, Will. I said, look, I just bought this 5D. I saw this thing. Why don't we shoot a scene tomorrow to see if this thing works? Right. So I had kind of an idea of something I wanted to do. I quickly wrote a scene. I called my buddy who owns a gym. I was like, we need to come over to your gym. I'll be there for an hour. And we basically, and I said, like, I'll play this personal trainer. And we'll shoot one half of the phone conversation as just a camera test. And that scene is in the movie. Of course it is. <laughs> you never never waste not what not. <laughs> no. So and we, you know, we dumped it into, you know, my desktop computer after we shot and like look at that holy crap that looks good okay let's do it so i just started writing then and with um you know you when you reached when you um 
picked up my book and you kind of found me, you were looking for distribution help and, and yeah. self-distribution help. What has stopped you? Have you, have you gone down the self-distribution route just yet? Cause there's a couple movies that I've, uh, summertime and beneath the blue suburban skies that are, to my knowledge, I looked, I can't find them. They haven't been, they haven't been released yet. What are you doing with self-distribution? Have you tried self-distribution? Cause I think you would be an amazing candidate for it. Yeah, so I'll tell you. So summertime, we actually did finally sell, um, and we're in the process of closing that deal. So I don't want to talk about it just yet. Fair enough. Um, but um, you know, beneath the blue suburban skies is one of my favorite films that I've made. Jennifer Ely plays the lead. I mean, she is so terrific. We shot, uh, you know, we, we shot on the red. Um, you know, we shot in color, but we knew we were going to turn it into black and white. So we'll lit it according for that. So it's in black and white. Um, a couple of years ago, I became obsessed with Ozu, Japanese filmmaker from the 50s and 60s. Um, so, you know, I mean, at another time, we'll talk about that film because we had shot the entire film on, on a 40. We use one lens. Uh, the camera never moves for the entire film until the very last shot of the movie. Right. Every shot is a still photograph. Um, yeah, I mean, a real interesting exercise in right. sort of discipline. Um, you know, again, I fell in love with right. his style and did all this research. I was like, kind of like with the 5D, I was like, I want to try this. This is kind of a, an interesting way to make an indie movie. So that movie went to Toronto. We got one of the best reviews I've ever got. COVID hit, and so it's just been sitting on the shelf. But that is the movie that we were thinking, hmm, do I, you know, do we try some form of self-distribution? But was the, is the, what's the budget? I don't want to talk about the budget. I'll tell no, you. Of course. No, 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 no. Yeah, okay. No, I don't want to tell you what the budget is, but isn't a, I'm assuming it's not, it's under $10 million. Let's just call it that. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's an under 10, I always tell people it's under 10 million bucks. It's under, it's it, like $35 million black and white, sad drama where the camera doesn't work. <laughs> Right. I was about, that's that, that sounds very really happy with me. <laughs> I think I think financially uh, that's a smart move. I'm just saying. No, uh, money it's rude. It's rude. It's rude. I'm just saying. Um, okay. Um, we'll talk later about that. Um, yeah. Now uh, you also, dude. You you worked on a great show called Mob City for mm. another master, Frank Darabont. Man, is there anything you learned from him as far as storytelling? Because I'm everybody knows on the show. I'm obsessed with Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile for that matter. I just, it's I, it's just one, it's my remote throwaway movie. Uh, if it's on, done, just keep yeah. going down that road. Did you, I mean, you worked with him obviously closely in the film, yep. uh, on, the, on the show. What did you, did you learn any uh, lessons that you can share? That's interesting. You know, uh, I mean, I love Frank, loved working with him. He's a great guy. Um, his style is so different from, what I do and how I learned how to make movies. You know, like we were talking before, like I only know from not having enough money and having to compromise right. and figure and learning how to pivot and be like, oh, you mean we, we can't have that location? Okay, we'll shoot it on the street corner. Or that act is not available. Let's quickly rewrite. You know, Frank does not work that way. I mean, like, so I think what I learned from him is, you know, he fights for his vision. Um, you know, if I, let's say if I have a weakness, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I have a number of weaknesses as a filmmaker, but one of the big ones is, uh, I'm not willing to fight for certain things. Cause I know there's an alternate way to do it. Um, 
And there are times where I look back and think like, you know what? I should have actually fought for that one. Maybe right. that's why the movie didn't turn out so good. Maybe you don't always have to pivot. Um, Frank never pivots. You know, he like, he has a vision in his head and come hell or high water, he is going to make that happen. Um, so, uh, so, you know, and, and, and again, I then, from that experience, you know, a guy named Michael Wright uh, ran TNT at the time. I meet Michael on the set of that, and that's how I end up making my show for TNT, Public Morals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Michael now runs Epics, which is how I ended up making Bridge and Tunnel for Epics. Yeah, so Public Morals was your first uh, introduction, basically, to a, a, being a, a creator of a show. And mm-hmm. you wrote the show, you act in the show, you direct, did you direct, you didn't direct all the episodes, right? Or- yeah, I wrote and directed all the episodes. So you wrote and, Jesus Christ, man, that's a hell of a schedule to do as a TV guy. Like you're writing, you said there is no writer's room. You're the writer, you're the director, and you're the actor in television. That's obscene. Uh, it's an obscene amount. But I wrote everything beforehand, like I did with Obvi- the- I mean, yeah, yeah, you're not writing as you're shooting, obviously, exactly. but still, it's still a tremendous amount of work. Um, and it's gorgeous. I, I mean, I saw parts of that show when it came out, and it was gorgeous, man. It was beautifully shot. It, it was well, so much fun. Like, we, we suddenly had money. You know, we're so used to making things on a, on on these lower budgets. You right. Know, TV budgets are significant. And, you know, Will and I were just in all of our glory. It was like, oh, boy, we finally get to play with the camera. We get some toys. Capturing an image. Yeah. You know, we all the toys. So it was a blast. And then, and now your new, uh, your new show, Bridge and Tunnel, uh, how did that come to be? And and I know you shot, did you shoot this during COVID, right? Not during COVID, yeah. So, yeah. So how did that come to be? Um, so I had dinner with Michael, uh, Michael Wright a couple of years ago. He had probably just taken over Epics and he was looking for, you know, a, a half hour escape from the toxic news cycle uh, and from, you know, a lot of the great shows that are on television can be, you know, pretty dark and depressing. So he's like, look, we need something half hour, put a smile on your face, something nostalgic, something period. Um, you know, could you give me something that's sort of totally like Brothers McMullen, uh, only about a group of guys like in Diner? And I said, okay, I like that idea, but maybe instead of six guys, why don't I make it three guys and three girls? And um, and then I kind of, you know, I mentioned before, The Graduate's one of my favorite films and always had an idea for a film. I didn't think it would be a TV show about, you know, a bunch of kids the day after college graduation. And you come home, you're back in your parents' house. You have to get reacclimated to living at home after being gone for four years. Reacclimated to, you know, all of your friends who are also home. And, you know, how does that pecking order reestablish itself? You know, a lot of times people talk about like that night at the bar before Thanksgiving. You know, everyone comes together and it's like the old order kind of reestablishes itself. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but I was also very interested, like the time period in New York that I've always been obsessed with. And of course, you're never obsessed with, you know, your era. Mine was the late 70s, early 80s in New York. You know, you got the birth of punk and hip hop and new wave and the art scene and the fashion scene and the city. Hip hop, yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I was thinking like that would have been the time to live in. So in a weird way, I, that's another one where I kind of re-engineered the story to think about where these kids would be in three years 
as they were in that world. And then kind of took them back three years to be like, so season one is sort of establishing the kid Jimmy, who I'm going to have end up as a photographer in the fashion world. He's a kid who's, you know, just returned from school and he's a photographer. Uh, Jill, his girlfriend, is going to end up in the fashion world and she's just graduated from FIT, this, uh, uh, studying design. Um, so that's kind of, that was sort of where the, the ideas came from. And we were supposed to be eight episodes. Uh, I wrote eight scripts. Uh, and then COVID hits, or I'm writing kind of leading up to COVID, and it comes to the point where it's like they're going to pull the plug on the show um, if we, if you know, uh, if production doesn't open up again. Production opens up, and we have all the COVID protocols, and we lose basically a fifth of our budget um, to the COVID protocols. Testing three times a week, you know, uh, additional, you know, sort of nurses on set, you know, uh, shorter days trying to pull as many of your interior scenes to be exterior scenes. And then we find out that the city is not issuing film permits and half the show takes place in Manhattan. So then I have to go back and so then I got to turn eight episodes into six and cut out probably a fifth of the cast and make all these stories work in these characters, backyards and front stoops and in the local bar. Um, and in an odd, you know, talk about pivoting and being able to do that. Uh, in an odd way, um, you know, it turned it into a different show. But I think, uh, you know, for season one, it's a better show because I didn't have all the, let's say, the bigger incident that Manhattan and their lives in Manhattan would have given me. So mm-hmm. I really had to go in and be like, okay, this has to be a character study now. Right. So it's going to be a little slower. Um, but I got to be able to make these scenes work. If you got like, you know, three guys sitting on their front stoop, uh, talking about their love lives. I was like, well, kind of sounds like brothers. But it seems like you were, but it seems like you had been, um, like you, your entire career has been building up to that moment because you are so used to not doing things and pivoting and and not doing things with money and pivoting and having to shift things around uh you know someone who might have only been able to play in 100 million dollar budgets will wouldn't that was well that's the end of that but you were able to adjust and pivot and move um so you all the all those tools you've put in your toolbox over your career helped you on on a, on a show a network show still. Um, the other thing was like you know I mean I'm I'm talking to all my friends who are my department heads, and we're you know everyone was feeling like I was feeling like we want to go back to work, right. you know. And I was like, if Epics is willing to do this, then I will figure out a way to do it because we all just needed to get out of the house. And- <laughs> set and shoot and jobs and jobs for people too jobs for people so i mean it really was it was just a blessing and my cast you know these great young kids who were total i mean they had a blast together but they were so responsible we got through the whole thing without anyone getting sick that's amazing that's amazing um so what's up next for you man what are you doing next i think we're looking good for season two so i think that's what i'm gonna uh start writing and now i'm you know i mean it looks like hopefully um we'll be able to take these characters into manhattan pick it up a year later it'll be july of 1981 so you know the band will be at cbgb's and the kids will be dancing in the nightclubs and it'll be fun dude i was i was i was raised in new york so i'm a new yorker originally so uh, uh queens Jamaica Queens. Oh, okay. So I was, I was, uh, I was 
raised, I was raised in New York and then I finished off in, in Florida and then out here. But, um, but I was from New York until 80, 85. So from oh. 76, no, 70, like, so let's say 76 to 85 and I was born in Florida. But that time period, I remember New York. My dad was a cabbie and oh, he would, really? he took me in. Dude, the days he would take me, I was sitting in the front and the stuff I saw as you know, running through Manhattan. And I remember breakdancing would hit and all of that kind of stuff. It was, it's hard for people to understand what it was like late seventies, early eighties to mm-hmm. be, it to be in New York, man. Um, I'm looking forward. I did, I'm looking forward to seeing that show now. I really yeah. want to, Oh, oh you'll, you'll dig it. And the soundtrack is incredible. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You'll really, you'll have a good time. Now uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Okay. If you could go back in time and tell yourself, your younger self, one thing, what would that be? Huh. All right. I, you know what? Um, the advice I would give myself is, no one is keeping score. Don't sweat your failures so much. Don't be pre- overly precious yeah. about every little decision. You know, there were some opportunities maybe I could have had uh, that I just, I was overthinking it and thinking, oh, you know, this isn't the right movie for this time, even though I kind of loved the script and what I was doing and wanted to do it. So, you know, again, looking back on 26 years later, who cares? Nobody cares if you had, you know, these successes and these failures. Like it really, it's, it so doesn't matter. Um, so I've been able to, you know, pretty much make a lot of movies over that time. But I kind of look at those chunks in my career where I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's because I was so hung up on it's got to be the right next thing. And isn't it, isn't it just like filmmakers to think that everyone's watching us and everything that we do is so important? And it's just a thing that, I mean, we, I do it. Every filmmaker does it. And you're right. It'll, it'll stop you. It'll paralyze you. Mm-hmm. It'll paralyze you. Great advice. Um, now, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break in today? <sighs> well, look, I, I mean, we kind of talked about it earlier. I would say, like, don't listen to the naysayers. You know, you you... You, you absolutely should pick up the camera and go make that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can do it now uh, at such a low budget that if it's terrible, kind of like all of the terrible screenplays I wrote, you don't need to share it with anyone. Like the songwriter who's got, you know, tapes filled with all of the half-finished terrible songs, uh, you don't have to right. let anyone listen to them. So. Go make the movie, learn from your mistakes. I mean, that's the great advantage I think filmmakers have now is they can have a process where you're learning, you know, in the way that a poet, a novelist, a painter, a songwriter can. That was never a freedom afforded to filmmakers before the last five years. So filmmakers can go out and make short films. They can make low-budget features that don't sort of bankrupt them. Um, So that's what I would say. And uh, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? I think it's sort of like, you know, don't be so arrogant to think you can't continually learn. Like I now, uh, you know, and and look, quite honestly, not to blow smoke up your ass, but that's how I discovered your podcast. You know, I'm trying to figure out what don't I know about the indie film biz as far as like, how to self-distribute a film. And that's how I discovered you. 
uh, I'm constantly picking up new books on screenwriting. You know, yeah. and there's someone who's written a book, and now I'm, I've become obsessed with those master classes. So, you know, and and the other thing is, you know, I've listened to all of them. And, uh, you know, I would say for, for every, you know, I mean, there's certain filmmakers and screenwriters who are telling you, no, 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 it's got to be done this way. Don't do that. Yeah. You have to show. Don't show. You, you know, you do you take from those the things that you know that, that think that 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 might work for you, but the, there is no one set of rules mm-hmm. uh, to do this. Fortunately, otherwise, you know, you and I are both not here. Uh, <laughs> right. You know. So, but that's what that would be the, the the thing I'd say. Just just you you should always remain a student of the game. You know, you can watch that first timers film and see something in that that you never would have thought of, where you're like, oh, you know what? I, I never would have thought to attack that scene from that angle. That's something interesting. Like, like I mean, I, I bring up Ozu, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I never, I, I hadn't even heard of him. We didn't study him in film school for whatever reason. I was listening to another podcast and, uh, uh, Brian De Palma was on and he had written a book about, uh, transcendental, transcendental meditation. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, um, but filmmaking. Right. Um, storytelling. I forget the name of the book. But he made that movie last year or two years ago with Ethan Hawke um, about the priest. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm doing press for that film. So I bought the book. I read that. That turns me on to Ozu. I go deep on Ozu. I watch everything he's got. And then I'm like, oh, it's a new style of filmmaking I've just discovered. And, you know, this filmmaker was making his movies in, you know, in the 50s. So Amazing. I changed my approach to, uh, to a film. So. And three of your favorite films of all time. Uh, you know, I mentioned my Texas trilogy, hands down. I mean, I go to them all the time. You know, Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall, Bogdanovich's Picture Show, Paul Newman's HUD. You know, two of them were written by Larry McMurtry, who's one of my favorite novelists. So those are my, my three big ones. And then, you know, I mean... Uh, I'm a New York guy and I, you know, I love gangster films. So Godfather one and two and Goodfellas, you know, that's my, my holy trinity of, you know, of just badass, you know, the, the best there is of the, the gangster genre. Brother, man, I, I really do appreciate you coming on the show, man. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you, man. And thank you for the years of inspiration uh, to us, all us indie filmmakers out here trying to hustle it out and trying to make it happen, man. You have been a great inspiration since you came out with Brothers McMullen and you've continued to feed the, the community with your books and your commentaries and everything else. So thank you again, man. I really appreciate it, brother. Awesome. And thank you, man. And I, and I do mean it. And anyone else there, anyone out there listening Go to the backlog of these podcasts. They are filled with great information to help you on your way. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. I want to thank Ed for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe. I also want to thank Ed for his inspiration over the years for for independent filmmakers around the world. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including links to all of those amazing DVDs with director commentary, as well as his amazing book, Independent Ed, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 126. And if you haven't already, please head over to screenwritingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It truly helps us out a lot. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, 
Keep on writing, no matter what. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at BulletproofScreenwriting.tv. 